All right, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 2, and I'm going to read for us verses 15 to 21. Let's give our attention to the reading of, uh, the reading of God's word found in Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 to 21. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Well, certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. We pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this day, and we pray that as we listen to your word, we ask that your spirit be present with us, and to open our eyes and our ears as we say that we would hear and see things otherwise we could not. Would you do this for your own glory, we we pray. Amen. So I've I've started a a new podcast that came out recently, titled Heaven's Gate. Some of you all may be familiar with that terminology. What is that? Well, Heaven's Gate chronicles this scenario or this event that happened in 1997 in March. And some of you all were around then, maybe more familiar with this camera that would go into this mansion on March, March 23rd, 1997, where 39 people had committed suicide all at the same time. And they were all wearing the same stuff, same black and white Nike shoes, had $5.75 in their pocket. And they did this because they believed that upon their death at this particular time, there was a UFO following the comet Hale-Bopp, right? And that those whose bodies had been put to sleep, they would be able to be transported up to the UFO and taken to the next level in the space, which I guess is good. Some of y'all remember this, okay? All right. It's crazy, crazy story. Um, and so this whole podcast sort of chronicles, where did this come from? What happened? What gets somebody to believe in what I just told you? And maybe better yet, who is convinced enough about this to go tell other people to follow them? And though the answer detailed and complex, it's very simple. <clears throat> This happened because two people thought the Bible was about them. Heaven's Gate starts back in 1975 with two people by the name of Marshall Applewhite and Bonnie Nettles. Where they find each other, they leave their families, and they go off into the land, gathering a following. Because they think that the two people... That Revelations 11 is talking about is them. The Heaven's Gate story is certainly strange, which is why I'm sort of addicted to it right now on the podcast. But 
But it is not unusual in the sense that as long as people have been reading the Bible, there has always been this desire and temptation to make it about themselves. And when we make the Bible about us, right, there are always severe consequences like 39 people committing suicide in 1997 or as we'll reflect on today, a complete abandonment of the truth that scripture is the sole authority before man and not men. But we do this too, just for the sake of understanding where I'm going here. When we sit down to read scripture, the temptation to make the text about us is always there. Certainly scripture applies itself to us. I'm not saying that it doesn't. It absolutely does. It applies itself to us in our lives. But we are not what scripture is about. We matter, as we say sometimes, but we are not the point. And while we may never join in on the next mass suicide so that aliens may come and take our bodies to the next level, the temptation is always there before us to drift away from the scriptures because we think it's about us and not about Jesus. And I start here this morning because for the Reformation, for Reformation Sunday, if you will, to say that what the Reformation of the 16th century did for us, and I hope that many of us in this room are hearing this word Reformation for the first time, it's not a cult, I promise. It's not. Um, I remember hearing about it for the first time when I was in college. But I start here to say that what the Reformation basically does for us and did for us in history was say this. The Bible isn't about you and the Bible isn't about me. The Bible is about Jesus. Therefore, let us make much of him and not ourselves. And if you're leaving here with anything this morning, leave with that. That what we seek to do through this tradition and and through this day and through scripture is to make much of Jesus and not ourselves. And so on your handout there, I want to look at two quick things. What the the Reformation is, what is the Reformation, and why does it still matter today? Why does it still matter? So what is the Reformation? When we think of the Reformation of the 16th century, we often think of a guy by the name of Martin Luther who gets a lot of the spotlight for this Events, if you will, or this this movement, and he gets it because it was his nailing of these ninety five theses upon the Castle Church door in Wittenberg in fifteen seventeen October thirty first, which will be the five hundredth anniversary on Tuesday, and he gets the spotlight mainly because he survived, right? Like he he challenged the church's absolute authority, and he lived. What that also means is many people did not live, but this event that we're celebrating essentially on Tuesday, the 500th anniversary, is the hinge, if you will, of the gate that swung open this movement that was going on already throughout Europe. And so to understand what the Reformation is and what it was, you have to begin before 1517, and you have to begin to ask yourself, what were people really protesting against? And of course, the word protesting, protest, that's where we get the word Protestant. What were they protesting against? If this didn't start with Luther, who did it start with? And and what were they putting their lives on the line for? Well, first, I want us to meet a guy named Peter Waldo. This was a Frenchman who thought one day, in light of all that he saw going on around him, all that was going on in in the church, that it is better to obey God than men. Peter and those who agreed with him were known as the Waldensians. And they endured persecution for centuries because... Well, beginning all the way back to the 12th century, because they believed in two things. One, they believed that everybody should have a copy of God's word or at least have access to it, which is something that we certainly take for granted. Oh, see, up to this point, the only people who had the Bible or could read it 
was the church. <clears throat> and the Bibles they had were not in your language, in language. They were not in English or Spanish or German or French or whatever. They were in Latin and Greek and Hebrew. So if you could obtain a Bible, <clears throat> that was no good because then you had to go learn these languages. So Peter Wallow thought, no, everyone should have the, the scriptures in their own vernacular. They should have access to God's word just as uh, everyone else or the, the church does. And so this is the first thing. The next thing the Waldensians pro- protested against was this thing called transubstantiation. And not to sort of get on a rabbit trail about that, but what is that? <clears throat> it's a view of the Lord's Supper, which we take every, day, every week. And this view was the Catholic position, and still is, that the priest has the ability to actually transfer to, or, or take, take the elements, the body and the, and the, and the wine, or the, blood, or the bread and the wine, and to make them the actual body of Christ and the actual blood of Christ. And while there are huge implications for this, and even consequences for this, and even though it is bad theology, if you don't have scripture to tell you any different, then you don't really know what the deal is. But Peter thought something very different. He thought, look, if that's true, then the problem he has with it is the power that it gave to the church and the consequences of that power and that authority. And that's what you begin to see happening over time as we move closer to the 16th century, the abuse of this power. So those are the two things that Peter Waldo and and his crew were interested in. And Peter was from France, and so this is sort of happening in that neck of the woods. Next, you have um, a guy named John uh, Wycliffe, who some are familiar with. We even have folks who uh, work for a Wycliffe translation uh, that go to church here. But in the 14th century in England, uh, John was one of these guys who completed, not one of these guys, he was the only guy who completed the first English translation of the Bible from Latin. And this is in 1382, closer to the early 1400s. As one probably Englishman wrote, to Wycliffe, we owe more than to any one person, our English language, our English Bible, our Reformed religion. Wycliffe would die in, in the year of 1384 of a stroke, but the Catholic Church wasn't really done with him yet. In 1415, the Council of Constance, Wycliffe was declared a heretic by the church, <clears throat> thus banning his writings and ordering him or ordering them all burned. The order confirmed by Pope Martin V at the time was carried out in 1428, years after John's death. So he was then ordered to be dug up, burned, and his ashes were thrown and poured out into the River Swift to flow through the town. As an example of what happens when you stand against this authority. But at that very council in which John Wycliffe was being deemed and declared a heretic, another follower of his was there. Another reformer, if you will, by the name of John Huss from Bohemia. He was invited to attend this council. But, and one of the reasons he was invited to do that, excuse me, because he was protesting also and talking about things like the Bible alone as the true authority over man. Or grace alone for salvation. Hus came to the council, but it was really a trick. They bound John and they burned him at the stake that day. And in Prague today, if you go and visit, you'll see a statue made and given to Hus reading, Live for truth, fight for truth, die for truth. Martin Luther is 14 at this time. And so by the time we get to Luther in 1517 and his 95 theses, much of his concerns had already been raised. At the same time, Luther knows as he's about to go nail these to the door, what is at stake for him? At the least, I could lose my job. At, at, at most, I, I could lose my, my life. 
<clears throat> but as it turns out, just like Wycliffe and Huss and those before him, Luther is declared a heretic and he's put on trial. And then later in the year 1521 at the Diet of Worms, where he would stand before council with all of his works on the table at being asked to recant of the things that he was saying and teaching. And what was it that he was being asked to recant of? This is very important. Of those 95 theses, and, and like those who came before him, he was challenging the absolute authority of the church. Specifically, that the church itself held the same authority as Scripture. So one example of this to Luther was the doctrine of indulgences. And many of you probably heard this before. But this doctrine taught that if you pay more money, I mean, if you give unto God on top of your tithe, the Pope will pray and free a family member from purgatory or that holding place that you go to before one is made righteous and able to enter heaven. Now, alongside this, Luther was also being asked to recant that salvation was by faith alone. At the time, the church taught that it was by faith in Jesus plus other things, right? Plus alms, perhaps, plus confession. That's a good one. And certainly the sacraments, of which there are many. At the end of the day, Luther was challenging the church that all doctrine or dogma not found in Scripture itself be thrown out and discarded, like indulgences, like faith plus something else in Jesus. In this way, he was challenging the belief that the church's traditions and teachings held the same weight as Scripture itself, that whatever the interpretation the church made was then infallible, and he was saying it wasn't. In other words, by the time we get to Luther, the church is making very little of Jesus and his cross and much of itself. And those who rule and seek power for themselves. Being asked to recant at the Diet of Worms in 1521 with Luther's life on the line, we get this famous line. Unless I am convinced by this testimony of scripture or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in popes or in councils alone. I am bound by the scriptures I've quoted. I'm bound by the scriptures I've quoted. And my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Amen. This is what the Reformation is or what it was. And getting back to scripture alone as the only authority, getting back to Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone as the means for salvation. But it was so much bigger than this. And this is something that you've got to take away as well. It wasn't just Luther who was doing this, right? You had this guy named John Calvin who was setting up shop in Geneva. And he was writing this incredible theology for the church, for the Protestant church, the protesting church. In England, you had a guy named Thomas Cramner carrying on the torch, later would be martyred as well. And then in Scotland, a guy by the name of John Knox. All throughout Europe, this was happening. And you had men and women risking their lives and families for the belief that Scripture alone and faith alone and Christ alone are what the church has always believed because it was what the Bible said. And from this, you had writings from men and women that would shape and change what you and I believe today about marriage, what you and I believe today about work, what you and I believe today about family. I was reading about a woman named Katharina Zell in the 16th century, who is actually credited with being the first to bring a charge against and a challenge against the Roman Catholic stance on celibate clergy. How did she do that? 
Well, her and her priest husband were under attack for being married against canon law or church law. So she wrote a paper in defense of clerical marriage while pointing out that, quote, if the Pope didn't have a problem taxing among or taxing prostitution among the clergy, you heard that correctly. If the Pope didn't have a problem taxing prostitution among the clergy, then he really had no argument against a faithful marriage. And I, I, I wrestled with even putting that in there. But I think, in, I think in our day and age, we're so removed from this. It, we, we, we kind of, what's the big deal? That's a big deal. And this is the least of it in some senses. And this brings up another important aspect of the Reformation that we need to remember before we move on. The Reformers, as they're called, weren't starting a new faith or religion. They weren't getting rid of the old to make way for the new. It's so important to get this. They were simply bringing the church back to where it started. Back to the councils and the creeds it had confessed and established in the first thousand years since the death of Christ. Back, if you will, to making much of Jesus. So when we think of the Reformation and what it was, we need to be seeing it more as a returning to what the church historically believed and not a split or something brand new. Back to protecting and preserving the word of God while equipping the saints for ministry. Getting back to scripture alone as the only authority. Getting back to Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone as the means for salvation. This is what the Reformation is and what it is about. So what does this mean today? Like, Why does this still matter? And hopefully uh, up to this point, you've picked up a few reasons why this still matters. But I'm going to leave us with three. There's many, but here are three reasons why this matters. The first is this. The Reformation matters today because you and I have hearts that are still defaulted to read the Bible and make it about us and not about Jesus. This is not a Catholic Protestant problem. This is a heart problem. And this is what Paul, to get to our text, is actually saying to us. If we look there in verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth. In other words, from a human perspective, if any group could look at the Bible and say, this is about me, it's those who were and are Jewish. Like we have the chip on our shoulder. We know (laughs) we're God's chosen people. That's what he's saying. We ourselves are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners. We might today say, look, I'm not Catholic anymore. I'm reformed. Got it. Right? We're fine. We would think that. But Paul is not concerned with your tradition. He's not concerned with your ethnicity. He's not concerned with anything because you have the same heart as, as all other humans. The same heart that longs to make much of itself. The same heart that longs to justify itself, to make the Bible about what we are doing and not about what Christ has done. So Paul says, in spite of our tradition, in spite of our background, in spite of whatever it is, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus. Why does the Reformation matter today? Because it is an honest attempt to get you and to get myself, to get the church, to begin making much of Jesus again. When our hearts want to make much of ourselves. You are never justified by what you do or where you live or how much you give. 
you are only justified or made right before God because of one person, and that is Jesus Christ. And just as important, the way you are justified is through faith in him alone. This is what it means to make much of Christ and not ourselves. What else? The Reformation matters because we long to make the Bible still about ourselves. It also matters because grace matters. When the Bible becomes about Jesus and not me, but what he has done for me, then what happens? My eyes are open to a world that changes the way I see myself and the way that I see others. And that is grace, friends. That is grace. Paul says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. See, in other words, he's saying, before I lived trying to get right with God, that, and, and, and in doing so, I was putting my faith in that life. Before I'm going about doing life, I'm doing the things I'm supposed to be doing, but I'm putting my faith in that life, in those things, in those works. I'm putting my faith in me. But now, Paul says, I live a life that puts its faith in someone else's work, the work of Christ on my behalf. And that is grace, friends. And why is it grace? Because you and I don't deserve this. Verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. See, this is interesting to me as I was thinking about this this week. Here's what Paul is essentially saying. Either Christ's death was an act of grace and mercy on your behalf, or it's nothing at all. In other words, there isn't, it's impossible for there to be some, something in between, some, some equation, some combination of your work and Christ's. It can't be something in between. It can't be his death plus your tithe. It can't be his death plus your confession. It can't be his death plus the sacraments. Otherwise, this would make Christ's death itself pointless. And this is what consumed the mind of individuals like Luther and Calvin. And it should consume ours as well. Is grace real? It would be good to spend the week contemplating that. And just dreaming about it for a minute to the point where you're like, this, this, this is almost too good to be true. Maybe it is. It would be good for that to consume our minds. It's either grace or nothing. See, and this gets more to the point, grace matters because it's the only way to understand the love of God for you. It's the only way for you to understand the love of God that he has for you in Jesus. If you nullify grace, meaning you think part of how you're made right with God is through your own efforts and work and, and Jesus' efforts and work, sort of this equation that I mentioned earlier, then you've got to ask yourself, which part of that equation do you begin to think about the most? Which part of that equation becomes the most important? Which part of that equation do you think about and wonder about the most? Which part of that equation keeps you up at night? Is it what Jesus has done for you or is it what you're supposed to do? So when we do that, it doesn't matter how much glory you give God. You put yourself in there, any, any amount, and that becomes your salvation. You fixate on it. 
You dream about it. You wonder. You, you stress over it. You also measure everyone else by it too. And in that way, it becomes salvation. Grace matters because it's the only way to understand the love of God for you in Jesus. When the Bible becomes about what Jesus has done and not me, my eyes are opened to a world that changes the way I see myself and the way I see others, and that's grace. This is why the Reformation matters. Lastly, this matters because it is ultimately grace that changes our motives, not law, not law. If I'm going to follow Jesus, if I am going to trust Jesus, I have to know that Jesus loves me. Otherwise, my motives for following Jesus, for serving him and worshiping him will only be to secure that love. Which means I will live, as Tim Keller puts it, in order to receive the verdict from God that I am loved. But what the gospel tells us, what the Reformation fought for, is that we have the verdict already in Christ. Now live. And what is that verdict? It's tucked in there at the end of verse 20 of our text this morning. The Son of God who loved me, And gave himself for me. Did you hear that? The fact that you can hear that in English means a lot today. The fact that people throughout the world can hear this in their native tongue means a lot is an understatement. He loved me and he gave himself for me. That is not something he will do if you keep coming to the church. That is not something he will do if you give your money away. That is not something he will do if you just keep up your side of the bargain, friends. It's something that he has already done. You have it. Now live. And this becomes our life of gratitude. Come in here and worship the God who has given you this. Give your money away. Confess to him who is graciously there to forgive you. Take the sacrament he offers. Follow Jesus. This is how grace changes our motives, not law, because grace is the only thing that is able, that, the only thing that can change our hearts. Christ, who loved me and gave himself for me, you have this verdict, now live it. And for the Christian that has always looked like one thing, you now have the freedom to give yourself away, both sacrificially in love and in service. And the joy that comes from that is unspeakable. We don't do this in order to get God to love us. We do it because he already does love us. These are the three things I want you to take away this morning as to why the Reformation matters. We always have hearts. We will always have hearts who long to look at Scripture and make it about ourselves. To make much of us and not make much of Jesus. Grace matters. And grace matters because it's the only thing that is able to change our motives. Which means it's the only thing that's able to change our hearts. In closing, to think that men and women gave their lives, gave their money, gave up their comforts so that this gospel of Christ might reach your ears this morning should move us. It should. But let us not make much of men this morning. Instead, let us make much of Jesus.
to think that God would give his life, his status, his comforts, everything for you. Let us dwell on those things, friends, those beauties, for certainly that is where much is made of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for we thank you for history. We thank you for this text and how it has traveled through history and it has been used in so many different ways. But what we know about you and your truth is that you are never afraid and you are never worried or surprised at the misuse of your trust because you are faithful and you will move the church through from generation to generation because Jesus is reigning and he is king. That is our hope this morning. It is not in our books. It is not in our, our, you know, anything that we would hold on to, to try to secure something that we would think that we love it more than you. You love your scriptures more than any of us. And we pray that as we think about these things, as we think about what, what this uh, anniversary even means, that we would see it as nothing short of our attempt to try to make much of Jesus, your son. And would you be glorified through that? We pray this in your son's name. Amen.